Hello and welcome to Let It Be, a podcast about less doing and more being. This is episode 69. So Brooke, we've come to the final show for this current season and we do like to wind up seasons with an Ask Us Anything episode. I think we always enjoy doing these episodes and we have had quite a lot of great questions here from the listeners and quite a lot to get through. So I figure we should just jump right in, right? All right. Sounds good. Okay. So let's start off with Kerry's question. (laughs) I had to giggle to myself when she asked this. She said, what sort of things big or small, wind you up to the point that all theories to deal with it go out the window? I've got mine, (laughs) but I want to hear yours. This is a really good question. I had to think on it a bit, but it's something you and I speak about on occasion. It's the idea of gotcha in internet world or (laughs) just the, you know, the judging someone by you know, a general personal philosophy and going real specific on it and go, but you can't do this if you say that you're that. And this, you know, it's that real gotcha mentality of, well, obviously you're lying because, you know, someone who's into slow living wouldn't say that or someone who's, you can't self, you you can't call yourself a feminist and then do you, and then criticize another female. Like, correct. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It just, it really bothers me because it's so like (laughs) Seth Godin in, which book was it? It was the Icarus Deception talks, which is all about art and creativity and having, you know, the courage to to expand yourself in a creative sense uh, and talks about practicing in public and the critic who will read a 3,000 word post that is full of value and yeah. insight and wisdom and pick out the spelling error oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, not comment on the content not comment on the insight or the wisdom or the time taken to express themselves but pick out the the one spelling error and just because i listened to that book as an audiobook and the the frustration in his voice <laughs> is I, I think it to myself all the time he's like so please please point out the spelling error. It's great. It's fine. And I always think about that. So, yeah, that bugs me. <laughs> my, my one is it, it gets me every time and I'm completely rational about it. Um, it's when I have a low expectation of someone and they live up to it. I, I have It just makes me – you know when like you know someone is going to do something and then they do yep. it? Yep. It just makes me irrationally angry. I know I'm So being, something negative. Yeah, something negative. Like yep. I think like, I don't know, I think Ant's going to leave his towel, the wet towel on the bed this morning because he does it every morning. And then he does it and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe he left the wet towel on the bed again. And it's like, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty small example. I have quite higher yep. ones. But in general, yeah, if I think someone's going to do something that's annoying or negative or nasty and then they do it I just completely lose the plot and it's more on the higher level stuff it's like more people that I know and I think that they're going to do this thing that's you know going to screw me over or screw someone else over 
and then they do it and they live up to expectation and I just can't believe they've actually done it and I can't believe that I can't <laughs> believe they've actually done it. And I think it comes, I think, because I've, tr- I've analysed the behaviour because I'm like, why does this just make me go completely postal? And I think it's because even though I do think they're going to do this nasty thing or negative thing, I secretly hope that they're not going to. And then when they do it, I just feel so disappointed and mm-hmm. maybe disappointed in my lack of, you know, reality or, yeah, I don't know. It just, it's the dumbest thing. I lose the plot all the time. Aunt just looks at me and goes, well, someone just lived up to an expectation of yours and did something that you predicted and now you're angry. And I'm like, I know, I just don't know why. So that's my weird thing. (laughs) Jane asked, what tips do you have for staying present and in the moment? I find myself jumping ahead to future planning instead of being present with my family. I don't know. Is this a problem for you, Brooke? Mm, I don't think it is. moments where it is, but not, not usually. I mean, it used to be. It absolutely used to be. So going back to when our kids were really, really little, like two and just a newborn, that was me. Like I was always in my head and never present Mm -hmm. and that makes me sad to think about so it was a matter of very gradual relearning to simply pay attention to my senses like I didn't make it a high level thing like be present Brooke Mm -hmm. be present and you'll be a better parent and you'll develop strong memories of this you know it wasn't anything like that it was pay attention to what you can smell pay attention to what the skin of your child's hand feels like when you're holding it pay attention to their eyelashes when you're laying in bed with them, you know, yeah, and just the tiniest, tiniest details. Because what that does, if you allow yourself to immerse yourself into those details, you can't help but be there. If you're exploring what their eyelashes look like when they're sleeping, you know, fan down their cheek and the shadow and the way they move when they blink and, you know, when their their eyes move under their eyelids, that all you can't help but be in that moment. And I think it's just a gradual, a gradual relearning of that and also I think a compassion and an understanding that it's okay to think about future plans sometimes I I do it all the time you know it's but it's I think building up those skills of being present in in the present moment without making it this you know stick that we use yeah. to beat ourselves up with <laughs> I guess by saying oh, I'm not doing it right you know I'm not doing it right I'm not There's doing no right. this being it's present just, thing correctly that's right you, you don't have to you know don't make it something that you can feel bad about just just paying attention to the tiniest detail is, is probably the best place to start and possibly a useless piece of information or advice. <laughs> I don't think so. I think I know for me there's two things I've got here because I am someone that my natural preference is to live in the future because I am just a – I just plan as naturally as I breathe. Yeah. And, and that used to be my permanent state. And so I, I, last year I started practising just moments of mindfulness and I think, yeah, I really like what you said about not making it some kind of higher – you know, just another another high standard that we're trying to hold ourselves to, um, mm-hmm. the ability to be present in the moment. But, yeah, I just started noticing, like, you know, and when I noticed something, I would make sure I just took the moment to stop and notice it more fully. So, you know, notice the colour of the sky on a particularly big blue day, you know, notice the, you know, perfection of a flower, notice you know, the stillness of water. It, it just little things like that um, have helped me personally a lot. Um, and then the other thing is, 
when I do find myself getting a little bit caught up in my head and in kind of what Ant calls logistics mode where like my brain is just going and then when we do this we're going to do that and if I if we don't do that in time then that's going to affect that and like when I get myself caught up like that I I just do a big brain dump and actually I did one on Mm -hmm. Saturday because I woke up Saturday morning and I was a little bit like okay, got to do this and got to do that and then the next week this and, and I was like, okay, I'm clearly not feeling on top of life at the moment. I clearly feel like everything's a bit all over the place. So I just did a free write for 20 minutes where I just wrote out all the things that we've got coming up and got going on right now and from that free write, I just, I just made some lists and, you know, don't knock list making as, something you know it's such a simple thing and it's such an obvious thing but it really does help you get what's in your head out of your head and then when all that stuff's out of your head then your ability to notice because that's all being present in the moment is it's just noticing and that's all mindfulness is is just noticing so having a full head makes it hard to notice get the stuff out of your head and then you'll be able to notice again and yeah but I think the mega mega key is don't make it a standard to hold yourself to. Just aim for little moments in the day. Nobody, doesn't matter if they're Buddha or the Dalai Lama, nobody is present in the moment all the time. And that's a, that's just a standard that no one can hold themselves to or should. So Exactly. Yeah, I think taking like the richness and the depth of the moments that you are completely present in is really satisfying and nourishing instead of trying to maintain that 24 hours a day it's yeah I think that that's it's not just, realistic no it's it's really not and I'm I agree with you so much on like the brain dump even though people would argue that writing a list or you know jotting down every concern future concern is actually not living in the present moment it then allows you to it squeezes the sponge of my brain when I do it and it releases all that excess which then gives me space and air and white space and buffer and margin all those good things which is where you start to do your noticing from definitely so yeah I agree with you completely the brain dump is such a good place to start yeah even though yeah people like to poo-poo it or say you're making lists isn't helping you get things done that's not the point we're just we're just trying to free up brain space here Exactly. So Emma asked for ideas for stopping self-sabotage. Is it down to good habits? I like to stop using the word stop or get rid of or like these things that we do, we can't really ever get rid of them fully. And if the aim is to get rid of them fully, we're always going to fall short of that. So I just think it's a management thing. And for me, when it comes to self-sabotage, which I am – a professional at quietly <laughs> it's just awareness yep. yeah and it's an understanding that like when things are going really well it's so easy to stick to the good changes that we've made but when things aren't going well that's when we do revert to self-sabotaging and all self-sabotage is is reverting to behaviors that we have laid down over years and years and years so we can't avoid self-sabotage because if you've spent 25, 30 years laying down a certain pattern of behavior, that pattern of behavior never, ever goes away. It's always there. And then when we find ourselves a bit at sea, it's the first thing we reach for because it's easy. These patterns of behavior are easy. Maintaining good habits is not easy. So just notice that you're doing it. And each time you'll notice a little bit earlier and you'll make the adjustment a little bit earlier. But yeah, you will never, don't try to stop it because you can't stop self-sabotage just learn to notice it earlier is my kind of thought 
Yeah, I agree. I think just being aware and understanding what self-sabotage actually is, which is just slotting back into those well-worn patterns of behavior. And the reason they're well-worn is because we've done them for years. And the reason that we go back to them is because they're well-worn. So, you know, when things get complicated or hectic or fast or stressful, that's where we're going to tend to go. And I think that if we are aware of that, then, then we can have strategies in place. But I also think that when we find ourselves constantly drifting back into that old pattern of behavior, it's probably because things are busy or hectic or stressful. So instead of worrying about all of the patterns, like all of the, the patterns of behavior, choose one and really focus on creating a new path for that one and not because we answered a question about this uh, a couple of episodes ago but just focusing on one change at a time Mm. I think is also a really good way of I guess limiting that that feeling of being a failure you know when you find yourself back in that same old pattern of behavior for everything maybe it's because we're trying to do all of the changes at the same time yeah but I think just in a nutshell absolutely just being aware of it is uh is key cool Beth asked, I loved your episode on routines, rhythms, and rituals, but I was just wondering if you have any tips for people who don't do a nine to five, Monday to Friday type job. Beth works shifts, so her start hours vary from, you know, 6.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. and she could finish, you know, anywhere between 5.30, 8 o'clock and she works weekdays Mm. and weekends. So I reckon this one's for you, Brooks. Do you have any tips for creating rhythms or rituals that can work with these kind of varied work days? Yeah, I think that, first of all, it's it's tougher, undoubtedly, mm. you know. I mean, I don't, we don't have a Monday to Friday nine to five job, but we do have pretty set hours in that regard. Uh, and sometimes that my day starts at 5 a.m., sometimes it finishes at 9 p.m., but typically they're fairly standard. So for someone whose work hours and shifts are all over the place, that's really one of the reasons why I love the idea of rhythm rather than routine because to me and I know we've had conversations about this back and forth a lot but to me rhythm is about the order of things rather than being attached to a particular time Mm. so if you could look at what needs to happen in your day and your week and kind of start to plot out a rhythm where those the sequence of events makes sense then you can pop that in regardless of where you begin or end your work day. So, you know, I mean, it's kind of can't think of a a particular example on the fly, but let's say that at the end of your work day, um, if it's daytime, not if, you know, you're finishing at three in the morning or something like that, but, you know, you have a sequence of events that you finish your work day with, and that could be sitting down at the end of the day before you go to bed and having a cup of tea, you know, and something really simple and anchoring like that, Mm something that signifies the beginning of your rhythm, you know, before you go to work or, you know, on the Friday night before you work or weekend. And if you start to think through what needs to happen and start to create a few different sequences that slot in at those different kind of times that work not only for you, but for your family and your, I guess, overall pattern of work, which is very changeable. Yeah. So I think it's, it's not a, steps one through five to to create the rhythm that works for you but rather a writing down all of the things that need to happen in your week and starting to find a sequence of events that fits for you on that given week rather than having it set to a specific day or time I think again that's probably infuriatingly vague but I think that taking the time to write them down and think through those 
those things that are important and then the things that also need to happen because they're not necessarily the same thing and making sure that you've got time for things that fill you up in in amongst it all as well yeah no it's it's a it is such a difficult one when you are when basically no two days look the same but there would still be you know there'll be the the day where you're working 6 30 to 3 that kind of day will have a certain rhythm to it and then the 9.30 to 5.30 day will have a certain rhythm to it. And I think working out the patterns of those days and working with those patterns. And as you said, like I think if you you must know your shifts ahead of time. So if you're able to look ahead at your week, you can identify, you know, where the kind of – the bottleneck points will be in those weeks, where the challenge points will be co-opt your – you know your kids and your uh, I don't think you have kids but co-opt your partner and your friends into working with those as well because if they know what you've got going on then they can slot into where they need to slot in as well so bring people on board with with what you with your rhythms and that help will help as well I like this question Brooke asked do you think you would be so successful without the support (laughs) of your husband's um (laughs) and do you know what when I first read this question I was like well no of course not you know because the thing for aunt that aunt does for me he's a very anchoring person so when I try to fly off into the either he kind of just gently grabs my ankle and brings me back to earth so (laughs) all that yeah he's my Miss Jane my the Miss Jane to my Mr. Swiggle so certainly I thought initially I was like, no, I wouldn't be. But then I was like, you know what? I'm the kind of person that it doesn't really matter how supported I am. If there's something important to me, I'll make it happen anyway. So I probably, if I didn't have the support of my husband or if I didn't have a great husband, I would probably still achieve things. But God, it would just be so, so Mm. much harder and more tiring and probably less satisfying because it's all well and good to achieve things. I just find that the things that you achieve on your own are less satisfying than the things that you achieve when someone else travels the journey. Part of, you know, plays their part mm. in your journey effectively. Like, you know, like in the past I've won big triathlons and it was very satisfying to win the triathlon, but the most satisfying part of winning was sharing the moment and sharing the experience with my coach and my training partners because they traveled so much you know I couldn't have done it without them and it was more satisfying you know okay I could have done it without them but it would have been a lot harder and it'll be a lot less satisfying so yeah that's I don't know is that a bit of a weaselly answer yes but no I mean when (laughs) I I first heard this question I came to the uncomfortable realization that the answer is no, I wouldn't, but not for the same reasons that you've offered. For me, it's purely financial. If Ben wasn't working the job that he worked for the first, Mm. uh, what, nine years of us being married, then I wouldn't have had the opportunity to try things and to, to essentially do a lot of work for free or for not getting, for not being paid, which a lot of my work online has been. So so much of what I'm doing now, which I am starting to, to get paid for, you know, I've written a book and I, you know, got paid a, t- a tiny advance um, for my book, you know, so I'm starting to see <laughs> a financial return on my work. But that's only because I was able to spend so much time developing that for free, you know, not getting paid at all. And the only reason I could do that was because Ben had such yeah. a well-paying job that he was also happy for me to do that. So 
I don't think I would be. Yeah. No. And I, you know, that doesn't make me feel great saying that, but it's also, you know, part of the decisions that he and I made way back before we started our family, that that's what it would look like for the time being. And I completely understand that that is quite unusual in this day and age for that to be a poss- even a possibility. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's my answer. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> no, I feel really uncomfortable listening to that answer because I was in a position where Ant was able to take over running our business and let me go home and recuperate. Yeah, but I, mean, I, but I also don't think that there's any right or wrong in any of it. It's just it is what it is. No. Had you asked me that two or three years ago, I that question, I would have gotten really offended, you know, as if it was sort of putting me <laughs> and what I'd done it was diminishing it and no, it's not at all. I think it's a really yeah. important question to ask because I also, and I, for me it's also important to kind of admit what our situation looked like because I don't ever want to feel like I'm saying, well, it's just easy, you know, or this is just, I just worked really hard yeah. as if other people don't work really hard, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I don't think there's any right or wrong. It's just, it's it's an interesting thing for me to to talk about because I'd had such a conflicted notion of of what it was to have a supportive husband I guess um and it took me a long time to not feel yeah I'll probably still feel weird about the whole idea to be honest but I think (laughs) it's such a good question and I'm glad Brooke asked it yeah well I'll give just a tiny bit of context to Brooke's question because she um from what she said and didn't say I got the impression that she is looking for a partner at the moment hasn't you know she looks at us and envies us our partners because she's not yet been able to find someone who is supportive in that way. And so, yeah, I feel bad saying, oh, yeah, I could have achieved things without Ant. But that is the reality of the situation. But that, all that said, I wouldn't want to. And he, I think one big thing that he's done for me, and this isn't helpful to Brooke in any way, shape or form, but he, in accepting me unconditionally for who I am and accepting that um, Kelly is always going to be the person who's going to go racing off after an idea she has to have a crack at it. Most of her ideas do not come off. They cost time, who cost her time with me, Ant. They cost time with the kids. And I, this is something I've gotten much better at over the years. But for a very long time, you know, Ant's been with me for 20 years and probably 15 of those years was me chasing off after things just because I couldn't not. Him accepting that part of me and loving me despite the fact that it, you know, it cost him. It cost him time with me that provided a huge platform from which I was able to launch. And, yeah, so, okay, so maybe I actually take my answer back. I couldn't have achieved what I did without you. <laughs> but I don't – it's not it's, – wow. um, it's not an easy question to answer, I don't think, because no. when I'm listening to you and I, I want – like I wanted to make clear – that it wasn't only like in terms of financial support. I mean, I want I want to make really clear on the record that Ben is supportive yeah. in every every way, many you know, other and ways, and is supportive yeah. in my, you know, my my development of myself as a person as well. And I often say to him, it must be really hard being married to me because you know, like <laughs> you look at all the changes that I've gone through, and like I'm not really the same person I mean I am in some instances but my philosophy and my approach to to life and my views on the world have changed significantly in the last 10 years or for the better I think but it's I'm still very different to who I was when I met him so and he's been supportive through all of that but it's absolutely and that's not like a, a supplication kind of thing either it's 
It's been a team effort. <laughs> you know, the reason he could work the job that he did yeah. on the hours that he did was because I was, you know, at home with the kids and was able to to give him that room to do yeah. the work that he did. And it's it's just this constantly shifting seesaw of support and sacrifice and compromise that is a relationship, I think. And that's And that's reality for any relationship. And you know, where do you find someone like that? Like God, I don't know. I found yeah. Ant at uni, like and did I know when I met him at seventeen that he was gonna be this person for me at, you know, forty? No. So it's unfortunately it is kind of just dumb luck, but also um, loving someone enough that you'll be able to push the hard times because there's always going to be hard times. And I do sometimes wonder if it's easier to meet someone when you're younger yeah. than when you're older because when you're older, and I, I don't know what Brooke's age is, but I do think we lay down expectations as we get older because we're so comfortable in our own skin and we're growing as people but yet we're less accepting of other people's need to grow because for all that I was growing when we, throughout the whole course of our relationship, so too was Ant growing as a person and we really grew Mm. together. And I think that that's really the core of a relationship is if someone's going to give you the ability to to make mistakes and grow as a person, then you two as well need to be able to give them that same thing. So it's really difficult. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, Brooke, I don't know if I answered your question. But I'm going to go ahead to Veronica's question. Um, she asked, I'm curious about your take on the intersection of Myers-Briggs and Gretchen Rubin's four tendencies. I'll answer this one because this is the stuff that I geek out on the most. So Gretchen herself says she doesn't think it's useful to try looking for intersections here, which I kind of interpret to mean, no, she hasn't really found any. <laughs> But that hasn't stopped me looking for them because they're my favorite thing. Like these are the, my two kind of favorite frameworks. And to be honest, I've not found massively co- strong correlations either. But I will say that the INTJ, ISTJ types I have found to have a strong chance of being questioners because they're the type that kind of likes to be right. Um, and I'm not saying that's a bit good or a bad thing. It's just that's just their thing. And because they like to be right, they tend to be questioners. And I found that strong J's, so strong judges, tend to be upholders because they're just so, they don't give it a second thought. They just make things happen. They don't need people to hold them accountable. For the most part, the, the whole, you know, the majority of the world are obligers. And that is far more a societal thing than a personality related thing. Okay, so the next question, Alison asks for our top podcasting tips. So that could, that could probably be an episode in itself. <laughs> I guess maybe I'll ask you, Brooke, like, what makes a good podcast, do you think? Like if someone's starting to uh, – looking at starting a new podcast, what do you think is key? Hmm. It's a really good question. I mean, aside from all the like the technical side of it, I think you, yeah. you just need something to say <laughs> and, and the desire to say it and work on saying it in a – in a clear kind of way, which is such an unclear answer. What a stupid answer. But what about the hook? Because I think like how important do you think is the hook of the podcast? Because I guess like someone might think, I I know a lot about small business or I'm very mm. passionate about small business. Like there's no point starting a small business podcast, is there? There's, no. It needs to have a really, really something unique or some unique angle to it, Correct. right? Yeah, exactly. I think that the time to begin – 
that kind of podcast has passed. <laughs> there are so many yeah. shows coming into um, into podcasting market now that you do need to have either an exceptionally high profile and to which people will listen to you regardless, yeah. which is very rare, or something unique to say or a unique way of saying it. And I think that – so you're probably not going to want to start a small business podcast, but you may want to start a you know, podcast for husband and wife teams who own a small business together and work from home. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It does. It has to, it has to get really specific, I think. Like, and I think it's almost like when you're writing an article, like you can write, you know, top 10 tips for, you know, slow cooker meals. Um, yeah, I say that because I just use my slow cooker for the first time this morning, (laughs) but there's so, so many articles out there about that, that you have to find, you know, a unique angle on it. So it might be the top 10 tips for, you know, slow cooker meals that only have four ingredients. Like you've got to find the unique angle, but that doesn't lock you in forever. You just need that, you know, this is my observations. I'm not an expert, but my observations is the unique angle gets people listening. Once people are listening, then if you want to pivot or if you want to expand the brief, that's fine mm. and easy to do. And I guess I think of that in like Carly and I kind of did that with Straight and Curly is that we started off going, we're going to test like life hacks and then we're going to report back on them and that's what we kind of started doing at the very start and that got people listening and then over time like the more then the listeners really started to drive the content of the show and they drove the content away from specifically testing hacks and they drove it more towards what are your experiences with this self-improvement topic so yeah so I think that might be um, the main thing is you've got to find the hook to initially get people listening, but don't feel like that's going to lock you in forever in that place. You, yeah. you can expand it once you've got people listening. The hardest thing is to get people listening, would you think? Or? I think so. I think it, that just takes time, you know, and, and I think so. There's a few other really quick points that I would yep. add, which would be be patient. It does. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find a massive audience overnight. It will take possibly months but possibly years and Ben and I feel like with the slow home podcast we're more than two years in and I feel like we're just starting to hit our hit our stride now and that's a combination of being prepared to practice in public and not be perfect at it and and be okay about that and also having something to say and the passion or the desire to continue to say it for months and months and months, you know, and not in a boring way, but like if you yeah. have a passing interest in something and you think, hey, I could I could make a podcast about that, you totally could, but you at some point need to have passion or drive or some underlying motivator that will keep you talking about it once the novelty's worn off because that's sort of what it takes. It's like writing. It's like blogging. It's anything. At some point mm-hmm. it stops being a novelty. It starts being a job. And that's where either deep interest or passion or, you know, drive is going to to keep you going when <laughs> so often, you know, you don't. And that's when you, I think there's a, a corner that you turn when you get to that point and you start to professionalize it a little bit. Not that, yeah. and I'm not saying it has to become a job, but there will be times where you're doing it, even if it's just something you're doing for fun, that it stops being fun and you need to to push yourself. Yeah, but I think patience, 
the ability to practice in public and not be perfect at it and release it anyway, but also a willingness to improve. Particularly, I mean, I didn't realize how many qualifiers I included in my sentences and how many times I repeated a point in order to make sure I had it clear until I started podcasting. And I'm still not, you know, not the best at any of those things, but the ability to be aware of those and start to improve on them over time is important as well, I think. Plus, like a certain level of Teflon coating for the feedback you may get (laughs) most of which in my experience has been nothing but positive but in the instances where it's not it's you know understanding that doing things in public creating things for public consumption means that people who may not be picking up what you're putting down will come across you and your work and sometimes they may not love it and it's just a matter of having some kind of healthy strategy of dealing with that as well but that's not necessarily uh you know part of putting together a podcast but it is part of the entire experience sometimes definitely and the one thing i would add is because it's one thing i wish we'd done sooner with both the podcasts that i'm part of is to start a facebook group because Mm. it's not like blogging where people can comment directly on your post and you can get that feedback straight away like you press publish and people read it and then they leave their comments or thoughts either on Facebook or on your post, like people are listening to podcasts at all very different times and it's not easy for them. You know, quite a lot of people do email us and that's great, but yeah, having the Facebook groups, it has been amazing for just getting a feel for what your listeners are thinking because otherwise you are kind of broadcasting into the either a little bit and you just don't know if what you're saying is resonating, whereas when you have the groups, it allows people to come in and go, yep, that episode really really resonated with me and then when you know what's resonating with people because beyond download numbers you don't know what's resonating with people but when people are telling you that really hit the mark for me then you can create more of that content and then of course the more content you create that resonates with people the more people listen and it, it, it just feeds on itself so yeah that's something I wish we'd done a tiny bit earlier but that said we did actually start it quite early yeah so I was quite happy yeah okay Angie has asked three questions and Angie always asks really good questions. And her first is, what is one quality you admire about each other? Go, Brooke. <laughs> I love, you're going you're gonna to laugh at me, but I, um, I love your ability to think deeply on things. And I know that's something that you've, you've kind of, you, you worry about because you're like, I'm an overthinker, I'm a worrier. But I, I do, I really love your ability to think deeply on things and Think about the, I guess, the value and the intention in everything that you put out in the world because that's something that I don't always do. Like I I often, often don't actually. And it's talking to you every week has given me the ability to think about things and view things in a very, through a very different lens. And I admire that a lot about you. Oh, thank you. Everybody knows that you're my therapist, Brooke. <laughs> Actually, someone emailed me the other day looking for a therapist that was like talking to you. Um, And I was like, I wish I could. (laughs) I'm not not even kidding. Um, And I was like, if only I could point you to. I'm I'm actually in the process of looking for a new therapist at the moment. So if anyone's in Perth and has a therapist they really highly recommend in the northern suburbs, let me know. But yeah, and I'm kind of like, holding them to the standard of Brooke and 
and I just know you're dying at yeah. the moment because nothing worse than people talking about you to you. But yes, that's it. It's just, I don't know, your ability to challenge how I think, but you just do it in a very, you're not doing it in a intentional kind of way. It's just how you think and how you speak to people. And I, yeah, I really love that about you. And I'm going to move on because I know you're dying and you can't I am talk. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thank you, Kel. That's all right. Um, what is the one simple intentional living thing that you struggle to maintain? Hmm. I'll say mine. Okay. I sort of, I don't know if it's a simple living. Oh, no. Okay. I, living truly in the moment and I know we've spoken about this earlier about not holding ourselves to a standard that's not possible but like I said it is very very much my brain's preference to live in the future and so yes I constantly have to remind myself and I constantly have to do little management things to bring myself back to the now and also to not worry because I do think worrying is is pointless I know it is rationally, but I do like worrying because it makes me feel like I'm doing something and I have to keep reminding myself that the act of worrying is not doing anything except making me feel yeah. bad. So that's kind of my simple living intentional thing that I'm constantly having to work on. I think what's yours? For me, I mean, for simple living has two sides to it you know there's the the intentional mindful present moment stuff which I feel like I've spent the last five or six years really working on and the majority of the time feel like I do a passable job of it but the other side of it is being organized enough to give myself buffer and and white space Mm. and margin and that's the side of it that I'm not as strong at I'm not a particularly organized person and I think that that's fine to a certain extent but I need to be in order to protect that space, I think, to, yeah. yeah, to a certain extent. Like you're very organised. You've, you've got really strong habits around preservation of your time and that's something that I am not as good at. <laughs> that's the nicest thing I could say to myself about myself. It's not your natural, but this is it's it. Not. It's, it's, it's the difference between being a P and a J. It's not like you're hopeless because you're you don't you're no. not good at this. It's just it's just that's not naturally how your brain works. You have to work much harder at it than, than me. Yeah. Whereas it's not naturally how my brain works to live in the moment. I have to work yeah. much harder at that than you. And it's just knowing these things about ourselves and and then doing what we need to do to make the adjustment. What's something you feel guilty about? Oh. <sighs> Not caring about organisation. <laughs> I don't actually care that much. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> I, I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because this is, yeah, so I'm a very good worrier and I love to worry, but I'm, I don't feel guilt about many things but then I feel guilty that I don't feel guilty (laughs) you're not flagellating correctly (laughs) that's right can't believe you don't think you're a bad mother for doing this you should feel terrible for not thinking that you're a bad mother (laughs) I know that's it It was like oh you know I've worked pretty much my kids whole lives and I've always I've never felt guilty about that and I'm just like oh my god there's something wrong with me I this is something everybody feels guilty about. Why don't I? But I just, I think because I know guilt is, I don't know, I know worry is pointless and I still do it. So I just, yeah, I'm not wired to feel guilty, mm. even though I have a strong Catholic upbringing. 
I don't know, maybe that's my pushback against the strong Catholic. I was upbringing. trying to tell you rebelling. You're not going yeah, to feel yeah. guilty. Yeah. I mean, I do, I do struggle with the sense of guilt sometimes that my life is the way it is. Like my life is good and I feel guilty mm. about that sometimes. A lot, actually a lot. Because I have in some capacity made a living by talking about life and how to not how to do life because I feel like I don't tell people how to do life, but you know what I mean? That kind of yeah. zone of, of, you know, talking well, about We're very things, aware of our privilege and we, and we have spoken about that in have. a recent episode and yeah, if there is something, yeah, I will agree with you actually. If there's something I feel guilty about is I feel guilty sometimes because I feel like a lot of the things that I talk about when I write and when I podcast are very middle-class problems. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel guilty about being self-indulgent. Yeah. Truly. Yeah. And, I mean, that doesn't make <laughs> me feel great to say that, but it's true. I do. I worry sometimes that all of this stuff is – and you know what? I understand how important it is, believe me, and I don't discount what we're doing, but sometimes I'm like, well, how nice that that's, you know, our problem. I know that these are our problems. Yeah. That we have good problems. Yeah. I feel guilty about my good problems sometimes. Mm. Okay. Mm. What's one thing you wish you had done or attempted five years ago? Ooh, I wish that five years ago I didn't care so deeply about what other people thought of my choices. Like I mm. wanted to make changes in my life, but I was really worried about what people would think about them five years ago. Now, not so much. Hmm. Kind of vague, mm, but yeah. What about you? Yeah. I can't think of anything I wish I had done because everything I have ever wanted to do, I've done it. Mm-hmm. That's that's just that's hardwired into me. If there's something I want to do, I do not overthink it. I don't fear trying it and failing from it. It is just easily the worst thing in life for me is to have not tried something as opposed to have failed at something or not done something. So, yeah, I don't. Yeah, there's nothing that comes to mind that I wish I'd done or wish I'd done earlier. Like kind of everything that has happened has happened in its own time for me. So yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there probably is something um, if I thought about it a lot longer. But nothing glaring. No, yeah. nothing like that sits over my head. Like you, the only glaring thing ever in my life is that I wish I'd done differently is that I wish I'd set my business up to run without me in it before I had my first kid. Yeah. That said, I don't know if that's actually possible because of where the business was at. So I don't even know if that's a realistic wish. Which is the problem with hindsight, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Yeah, It would have been nice, but I don't think I actually could have done too much more than what I actually did. So it's actually, yeah, I I don't sit around going, I wish I'd done that. So Anna asked, would love to hear your strategies for self-compassion. When do you recognize your or how do you recognize your standards are too high and are driving stress? I don't do I don't do that particularly well. Recognize that my standards or expectations of myself are too high, but I am getting much better at self-compassion. And I do that by uh, meditating and I do that by doing something really dorky and saying to myself that I love myself. <laughs> and I feel like a real weirdo in in saying it, but it but it works. It does work. I know people are like affirmations are so lame, but they they work. Yeah, and it's not like anything beyond that. But like I'll meditate, and at the end I will like bow my head, and I'll you know wriggle my toes and my fingers, and come back to myself, and I'll bow my head, and instead of saying Namaste, I will say Hey, I love you, 
And the first time I did it, I burst into tears because, um, <laughs> oh, no, I did. I did because it's been like a long road of self, um, hatred. <laughs> and, you know, you guys, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you know, I've spoken about that quite a bit, but, um, that helps because you can't hate someone you love and it's really a lot easier to be compassionate towards someone that you love, or at least don't actively hate which is where I was at a while back you know so and I think again though awareness paying attention when I am beating myself up unfairly or even fairly sometimes when I'm doing Mm. that it's like this is not the way to make improvements this is not the way to make yourself empowered to change or to feel comfortable or confident in trying something new you know, saying that you suck isn't how you're going to build someone yeah. up. You know, I wouldn't do that to a mate. I wouldn't do that to a child. I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to a stranger. You yeah, know, so exactly. why do we think that it works for ourselves? I don't know. But, yeah, taking time to think about something good. And that's something I actually learned in yoga. My teacher would always have us um, meditate for five minutes at the end. And at the end of the meditation, she would say, I want you to sit there and think of five things about yourself that you're grateful for. And it was hard to do that initially. But I thought it was such a beautiful way to – to finish that practice because you really did learn to go very minute with the things that you're grateful for and take a lot of comfort in them. And I think that doing something like that, even even just a, a mental checklist of things that you're grateful for in yourself every day can be a good place to start as well. Yeah. There's something I'm not very good at either and I've really had to come on board with in the last kind of few years. The, the biggest thing that I do if I catch myself – self-flagellating which I feel is the opposite of self-compassion or holding myself being perfectionistic Mm. is I I kind of write down what the problem is or the thing that I'm doing so I imagine that I'm a friend and I'm having a problem and so I kind of write it out like here's the (laughs) problem a friend has come to me with and then I write out the advice I would give that friend and of course the advice I would give that friend is is always so much kinder than the stuff I'm telling myself about you're not good at this and or you know you shouldn't be doing this or it's not worthwhile or you know all those horrible self-doubting thoughts they just don't come out when you're talking to yourself as if you were a friend and that's really you know there's lots and lots of little things that I do but that one is probably the most powerful and nips things in the bud most quickly I find yeah Mm. and then finally Michelle asked what does a perfect ideal day look like for both of you? Oh. So I can do like a, a perfect ideal realistic day or I could do a perfect yeah. ideal holiday day. My ideal day begins early and starts with yoga or meditation. You know, all right, I'm going to describe it. It's <laughs> I wake up in a cabin <laughs> in the woods in Canada and it's snowing outside and I wake up and it's still dark, but I sit uh, maybe in a room with a window that looks over the woods and I watch the dawn approach as I meditate. And then, I mean, I'd be happy to for an ideal day to include work, but if it's work of something creative-minded, I think is, is key for me, creating something, writing, recording, building, doing something creative, I think is important. And then time spent with my family outdoors and eating good food, they're really key for an ideal day for me. I mean, of course, if I was in Canada on holidays or whatever, great, I'd go skiing all day. <laughs> yeah. But those are the things that are important to me. Um, quiet time, like reflective time, and that usually is just in the early morning because that's when it works best for me. 
and then time spent outdoors and time eating good food and spending time with my family. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. What about you? Mine is awfully similar. Um, <laughs> my cabin is in yelling up in the forest, but I can see the ocean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yelling up is in the southwest of WA, just for anyone listening who doesn't know where that is. And yeah, I mean, my, my perfect day is just one that has space in it. So it's got space for me to be, to just kind of where I'm not looking ahead going, I've got to do this and I've got to do that. It's not an overly scheduled day. Yep. It's a day where I get to write as much as I want in quiet. So it's kind of like where does my family sit in this day? They sit after I've finished writing mm. and then I'm like, let's go do something together as a family. And my ideal day would be one where I can go for a bushwalk with my kids and Mia's not – talking the entire time (laughs) (laughs) and Jaden is not complaining about being hot and he gets hot in anything above 15 degrees so so we went on this amazing bushwalk like this gorgeous bushwalk on the weekend and it was so so lovely and I take my kids as they are they are who they are and I love them for who they are but yes but Mia is a perpetual noise making machine so she's either humming or chatting or asking questions (laughs) or like you can't even understand it until you experience it and then Jaden's great for the first 15 minutes but then as soon as he gets the tiniest bit hot, I mean, it, like I said, it was 17 degrees. He took his shirt off because he was so hot. <laughs> and then he proceeded to hide every time someone was coming in the other direction because they couldn't see him with his shirt off. So <laughs> it was just this beautiful, perfect winter's day and it was amazing. And I was like, guys, like I don't want to say you're ruining my bushwalk, but you're not making it as idyllic as it could be. So <laughs> And there you go, I'm laying down my perfectionism at the feet of my family. But yeah, I would love to be able to, I'd just love to go for a walk in the bush with my kids and aunt without anybody complaining. That would be an amazing day. (laughs) That sounds like a perfect time. Yeah. So they were really fun questions. Thank you very much to everyone who sent one through on the Facebook group and who has, uh, you know, contacted us via email or any other way over the past year or so of doing this show. We love that you you listen and seem to enjoy what we have to say. And as Kel said, we're taking a bit of a break, but we will be back soon. And until then, uh, look after yourself. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let It Be. If you want to connect with Kelly or myself, you can find us on social media. Kelly is at Kelly Exeter on Twitter. And on Facebook, if you search for A Life Less Frantic, you will find her there. And on uh, Twitter, I'm at Brooke McCallery. And on Facebook, I'm at Slow Your Home. And uh, if you wanted to either reach out to us on Twitter, you can use hashtag LetItBePod or uh, head over to LetItBe.fm and you can find our show notes and other information about the show. And finally, if you wanted or felt you know, the desire to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, that would be wonderful. And, um, you know, we, we read them all and we appreciate you taking the time to listen and then uh, tell us what you think. Jackrabbit FM. For your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.